the Lord. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. I'm thankful that Pastor and his family have gotten away for some refreshing. Amen. It's, it's been long overdue. Um, I'm going to give you so much Bible tonight. We're going to pray before we begin. And we'll, we'll just go from there. Amen. So if you would, just lift your hands under the Lord. Let's ask him to have his way. I want everything we do to be done in a submitted fashion, Lord. We honor you. We give you thanks. We give you praise. And we welcome you into this service. And Lord, I certainly welcome you into my mind, into my heart, and into my mouth that you might declare your truth to your people, that their ears would be open to receive what we're going to hear. It is the Lord of God. It is the truth. It is unfailing. It is unending. It is unchanging. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, I know that you've got a word for someone here tonight, that, that knowledge is going to increase in us tonight. We're going to become more aware of our God. We're going to come closer to you in Jesus' name, Lord. We thank you for what you're about to do in our midst. And somebody say, praise the Lord. Lord. And somebody say, tablet gets a working. <laughs> Bless the slow internet, Lord. Praise God. You can be seated. As soon as this thing decides to work, we'll go to work. It's eating into my time. I, I might have more than your mind and your posterior can handle tonight. Amen. Some of you would catch that on the way home. Thank you, Brother Melton. Come on, Internet. Well, praise the Lord. We're going to go without it for now. Tonight, um, if you saw the text that came out this afternoon, we are obviously going to be talking about the oneness of God. There is, there is nothing more near and dear, I don't think, to my heart than that simple thing right there. We, we say it's simple, but it's really not that simple, amen? If it were that simple, there'd be a lot of people that got it that don't seem to get it. Praise the Lord. We're getting there, folks. Maybe. Maybe. That's what happens when you go from one Wi-Fi network to the other, I suppose. There it is. Praise the Lord. Not a bit. So the oneness of God, it is a fundamental Bible truth. Everybody say, there is one God. There is one God, is one God and what's his name? Jesus. I'm thankful for the name. But that right there is a major differentiation between us that we call apostolic Pentecostals and the vast majority of the rest of Christendom. I want to take a little bit of time here because some of you you may have heard the term apostolic Pentecostal thrown around here, but maybe it's not yet been fully explained. And has anybody ever been asked the question, what religion are you? I mean, all the time, if you say you go to church, well, what religion are you? I mean, it's, it's like, well, what's your name? What religion are you? What's your date of birth? Where were you born? Amen. So sure, we've all been asked that question. It's a pretty normal question. If you've ever talked about religious beliefs at all, it's likely to have come up. And, and I've heard numerous people when asked, any variation of that question, that they will say, when you ask, well, what kind of church is it? They will say, well, my church is a Bible-believing or a Bible-teaching church. Well, praise God, all of them ought to be, amen? amen? But to varying degrees, really, is what they are. They, they may teach a little bit of Bible. They may teach a lot of Bible, but they may skip the parts they don't like, the things that don't agree with what they don't agree with, amen? But this is, this is truth, church. Amen. amen? And we believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that all of the scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction. Amen? Amen. Amen. It gives us righteousness. Amen. But you and me, we like labels. 
We like to be able to identify things, don't we? And so let me start with a label of Truth Church as being apostolic Pentecostal. And so let's talk about what that is, but let me start with the Pentecostal portion first. And I promise we'll get to the oneness. It's all part of this, amen? Because I really don't know how you can be Pentecostal and not be oneness. So this Pentecostal label is often used to describe a church or a group of people who do believe, in fact, in the infilling of the Holy Ghost or the baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance, as we see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But there are even some who call themselves Pentecostal that don't necessarily believe in the essentiality of the baptism of the Spirit. They don't think it's necessary. They think it's some additional blessing that you may or may not receive. It's not for everybody, some of them say. They just believe it's a gift for some and not for others. However, Jesus stated in John 3, 5, that except a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Without it, you can't get there. In Acts 2, 38, Peter, in response to the crowd's question of what shall we do, what shall we do? Peter instructs them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then he says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You know, we read a lot of shouts and shout nots in the Bible. Those are called commandments. So when Peter says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, that's a commandment. Amen? That's a commandment of our God that, hey, if you're going to get to heaven, you're going to have to receive the Holy Ghost. It's not a suggestion. Amen? It's not an if-you-want-to proposition. That some people teach that the infilling of the Holy Ghost was only for that day, 2,000 years ago, for those people. But is it necessary for everyone? But Peter said, shall. Amen? So the Holy Ghost baptism is essential. Everybody say, it's essential. It's essential. It is essential for salvation. And since it's essential, it's not just for a select few, it's for everybody. It's a promise, folks. But when you receive the Holy Ghost, let me ask you a question. Who or what is it that you receive? I'm glad you asked, Trevor. Thanks for playing along. Romans 8, 8, this is what it says. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But this is what it tells us who are in the spirit. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, I would say if. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Let me highlight that to you. It says the spirit of God. Amen. Now, if any man have not the spirit of, hold a minute. Christ, he is none of his. So what does that say? Right there, it's equating the spirit of God. In the spirit of Christ. Well, come on. And then verse 10. This is what it says referring to the Holy Ghost. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the Holy Ghost is equated to the spirit of God. It's, a spirit to the, it's equated to the spirit of Christ and then literally to Christ himself in you. Galatians 2 and 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But somebody say it with me, but Christ liveth in me. 
Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. We're going somewhere. This is what it says, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That who? That That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And then 1 John 3, 23, 24. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Now let's go to John 14. I'm thankful for media people. Thank you, Brother Gary. Verse 6, John 14, verse 6. Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, put a little placeholder there in your mind. So Jesus just declared that he is the truth. Someone say, he is the truth. Amen. Verse 8, there's another inquisitive disciple that comes to Jesus named Philip. And Philip asks him, well, show us the Father, Jesus. It'll suffice us. This is what Jesus says, starting with verse 9. Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Verse 10, believest thou not that I am in the Father? And the Father in me, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Now, Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. And how is that possible? Well, they're the same. Let's look at verse 16. This is what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. And then remember, Jesus said, I'm the truth. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth. Hmm. So this comforter that's going to come is the spirit of truth. So if, if if, if I die and my spirit remains, that's the spirit of Jonathan, amen? But if Jesus dies and he leaves a spirit behind, that's the spirit of Jesus, is it not? So if the truth dies and leaves behind a spirit, that's the spirit of truth. Hmm. Amen. So this comforter, a.k.a. the spirit of truth, a.k.a. the Holy Ghost, amen, a.k.a. the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, Christ in you. This is what Jesus said. I will not leave you comfortless. I'm going to send somebody else to go to you. No, that's not what he said. Brother Trevor, what did he say? I won't leave you comfortless. I'm going to come to you. Now. You're not ready for this. You're not ready. The word comfortless is a Greek word. It's going to sound familiar when I say it. It's called orphanos. So what do you say? Hey, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I feel the Holy Ghost. He said, listen, I've been with you. You've seen the Father. He's been with you. I'm not going to leave you orphans, Brother Trevor. I'm not going to leave you fatherless. How could the son say that about being the father? 
Because he is the father. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen. Now, I look a lot like my dad. I do. Ask my wife. I look a lot like him. When I'm 70-some years old, she knows exactly what I'm going to look like. There will be no surprise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shrink to about this height. I'm going to get a little pot belly, and, and it's just going to be what it is. I'm, I'm going to still be bald, though. That's not going to change. I'm going to still be bald. I promise this is not coming back. But she knows. But I can't say that when you've seen me, you've seen my father. When you've seen me, you've seen someone that looks a lot like my father, that, that even acts a lot like my father. But I can't say you've seen him until you've seen him. But Jesus can say, when you've seen me, you've seen my father. So Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you fatherless. I'm going to come back to you. And he said, yet a little while, the world seeth me no more, but you see me because I live, you shall live also. At that day, ye shall know that I am in my father. And then he says, you in me and I in you. Mm. So let's look at verse 26, brother Gary. It says, but the comforter. Now, if I could make it any plainer, this will right here. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, which is the Holy Ghost, it says, whom the Father will send in my name. So let me, let me just address Matthew 28 and 19 right quick. So Jesus came in the Father's name. So what's the name of the Father? Okay, well, the name of the Son is quite obvious. What's the name of the Son? Okay, and then he said, I'm going to send the comforter, the Holy Ghost, in my name. What's the name of the Holy Ghost? Y'all can go home. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Class over. Class over. Jesus said the Father would send the Comforter, but let's look at John 16 and 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient. That means it's better for you that I go away. It's, you're going to be better off because I'm going away. Why? Because if I don't go away, I can't send the Comforter back. Because if I don't go away... The Holy Ghost will not be poured out. If I don't go away, you cannot go and tarry on the day of Pentecost and receive the Spirit. Amen. Praise the Lord. He said, if I depart, I will send him. I, Jesus said, I will send the Holy Ghost to you. Jesus is not confused. He's speaking truth, folks. He had previously said the Father would send the Comforter. Then he just told the disciples he would send the Comforter. So how can he say he is not the father? How can we say he's not the father robed in flesh? Without controversy. Without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. He said he wouldn't make us orphans. He wouldn't leave us fatherless. But listen to what he did say he would do in Romans 8, 14 through 16. Romans 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... They are the sons of God. Number 15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. So you're no longer orphans. You've, received, you've been adopted. Praise the Lord. Whereby here we cry, says Abba, Father. Now let me tell you something about Abba. My goodness. Hmm. That's not just gibberish. Man, I feel
It's a Hebrew word. So if I was to say father in Hebrew, I would say av, A-V. But the word, that would be redundant with father, father, right? If I said av, father. But that's not what it says. What it, Abba is what a kid in an affectionate manner calls their dad. Out of relationship. A little kid would go up to their dad, and it's like Amelia calling me daddy. So it's when you get the Holy Ghost, you, can, you lift your arms like a little kid reaching up for daddy. It's only by the Spirit that we're able to call him daddy. And then what happens? Verse 16, it says that the Spirit itself then bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. Could it be? Could it be that your first utterance in tongues is crying out, Daddy? Daddy? I love you, Daddy. Mm. Everybody say, I'm Pentecostal. I'm Pentecostal. Say, I believe. I believe. The, spirit the Spirit is essential. But it's that Spirit that adopts us. Amen? That's why we call each other brother and sister. You know, it's interesting when you read Matthew... The beginning of the chapter, it gives three segments of gen generations, these genealogies, right? And, and there's 13 in each of them, actually, except for if you count the last one. It ends with Jesus, and it stops. Why? Because it doesn't keep going further. Why? Because Jesus didn't really have children. He had brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn among many brethren. All right, so we've addressed Pentecostal. Let's talk about apostolic, amen? Amen. amen. So what does that mean? So I don't know. We always tease Genevieve because that's kind of her answer. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I love having a preteen. Help me, Jesus. <laughs> so the simple answer, though, is that we adhere to the apostles' doctrine. And where do you find that? You Well, the book of the Acts of the Apostles and the epistles that the apostles wrote. Amen? Amen? So, but what it also means is, at the core, we believe the same thing that the apostles believed. Well, who were the apostles? Well, the apostles were one God Jews. So we can't separate ourselves from that doctrine. Perhaps aside from our stance on modesty and all that that entails, and our views on gender distinction and dress, I'm not sure that there's anything else that makes us more different than other Christians than our belief in and adherence to the oneness of God. As a matter of fact, so uncommon is this belief in one God that most Jews consider Christians to be idol-worshiping polytheists, which means we worship multiple gods in their opinion because of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I was acquainted with a man at work. He was a devout Jewish man. I mean devout. Where the kepha on his head, where a seat seat, everywhere he went. Totally covered. And, and, and I'll discuss that maybe another time if God wills. But what it is is basically it's an outward sign to those around him of his belief. I mean, so one, one day I just approached him because I, I knew what that was. I knew what it meant. And I said, hey, 
man, I really, I really admire your faith. That, that's great. And he was shocked because, you know, he's, who am I, you know? I said, no, I really admire you because you're standing firm on your beliefs and what you believe in. That's great. I, I admire that. I respect that. And, um, and, and so basically, we, we began to discuss a little bit and talk, and, and I piqued his interest because I said, no, nah, I'm not like most Christians you've ever met. And he's like, how so? And I said, well, I know you think that I worship three gods at least. And he kind of chuckled a little bit and said, yeah. I said, I don't. I said, I believe in hero Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And, and, and it went from there. And he was like, wow, that, that, that's really cool because I've never met a Christian like you before. And I said, no, you probably hadn't. <laughs> not to pin a rose on my nose, but there's really not many Christians that believe like we believe. Amen. There's really not. And so I recited what's called the Shema to him, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. And the Shema is core to the Jewish belief. I mean, it's, it's the Hebrew translation of Deuteronomy 6 and 4 where, where this, and well, you and I, we're the offspring, amen? Hmm. Abraham had many seeds. Praise God. And so it ought to be core. So where better to begin than there, Brother Gary, if you could, let's put that up as we begin to go deeper into oneness here. Everybody say that with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Praise the Lord. He's one. But we don't stop there. He can't. Because it's followed by a series of commandments that are directly related to it. Go to verse 6, Brother Gary, if you could. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them whew, mm, diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. I think it's important. You getting that? This is what he says. Write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. At a doorpost. It's called a mezuzah. Of the mezuzah of a Jewish home, you will find a box that inside that box contains the shema. That they don't leave without touching it. They don't come in without touching it. It's ever before them that they are distinctly different from everyone around them because they worship the one true living God. Whew. Now, Brother Gary, if you could do the Hebrew version. I want you to see something here. Now, you, we read backwards. They don't read backwards. Hebrew became before English. Amen. So we read backwards. <laughs> so we start over here for them for Hebrew. I'm going to read the top line going that way and the bottom line going this way. And what that says is Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Now, you'll notice if you look closely, I'm, I'm sorry for the bad picture. It's the best I could do. But you'll notice in the first word Shema, 
And the last word, echad. There's two letters that look different than the rest. Do you see that? Now, you can only write Hebrew verses if you've been trained to do so. And everyone that's trained to do so is taught to do them just like that when they write this verse on purpose. Because when you take that last letter, it's called ein, which literally translates means I, but it's ein. And that one over here looks like a backward seven. It's called, or it looks like a seven. It's called a dalit. When you put an ein and a dalit together, it makes a word. And that word is aid. We would write it A-Y-D, but it's aid. Is how you pronounce that word. And what that means is you put those letters together, it means witness. Whew. Me too, Brother Trevor. Hmm. That in the Shema, in the greatest commandment, there's a commandment built in to be a witness. Why? Because you're the only people that worship one God. And you're to be my witnesses, he said. Amen. Mm. Mm. So let's look at this. Mark 12 and 28, there's a scribe that comes to Jesus and he says, which is the first commandment. But in other words, what he's asking is, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment of all? And in verse, verse 29, Jesus responds with the Shema. He says, the first of all commandments, the biggest, the most important of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But in English, we don't miss it because it doesn't sound like a commandment. The issue is, of course, translation from Hebrew to English. The word here, which is from Shema, more, more accurately means to intelligently listen and obey what I hear. To intelligently listen and apply what I've heard. So when he says you're to be my witness, whew, I feel the Holy Ghost. Mm. So what this means is what I'm not only going to hear with my ears, but I'm going to hide. I'm going to engage my brain and integrate my heart and involve my body in my worship. So Shema means hear this, live this, obey this. Mm. So why is it so big? Why is that such a big deal? Because Moses is talking to a group of people that are unique in their religion just as I am. Mm. Their religion isn't mere religion. Their religion is about relationships. Because all of the cultures around them, think about the all the ites and the kites and these folks that they kicked out of the land where they were to possess. They worshiped a pantheon of deities. Multiple gods responsible for any varying degrees of things. They got one God to make it rain, one God to make it stop raining, one God to bring the cops, one God to dry it up. I mean, tell, I'm, you, you name it, they had a God for it. Various things that they were responsible for. And so in their eyes, if you will, Israel was almost like, nah, poor Israel. They've only got one God. That's really what those people thought about Israel. These poor Israelites, how, how sad. They've only got one God that they worship. So pathetic, you know? Mm. But in the Shema, 
this commandment, Jesus says, is the greatest of all of them. In fact, Matthew, Jesus says the entirety of the law and the prophets hinges upon this commandment. And what's the commandment? To be my witnesses. Hmm. You could, yeah, keep that up there for just a minute. Look at those two letters. The commandment to be witnesses to the surrounding influences that you are a worshiper of the one true God. They don't know him like you know him. They're not in covenant with him like you are in covenant with him. That in the midst of a crooked and perverse and untoward generation, you will live for him and obey him out of devotion to him so that your life can be a living testimony. That's what I means. Hmm. So the next time you say the Shema, think about that. Now, that last word right there, echad. Now, maybe you can get a little phlegm in your throat and you can say that with me, echad. <laughs> echad. That's the last Hebrew word of this verse. Now, now imagine with me if I had a, a nice piece of chocolate cake. I don't know, Sister Tabitha, you wouldn't want any part of it. So. <laughs> but a lot of you would. But... But I've got a nice piece of, maybe it's that, oh man, maybe it's that great wall of chocolate from P.F. Chang's. If you've never had it, go. Just after service, not right now. But let, let's imagine, if you will, that I've got this really big piece of cake. And Brother Trevor, you come up because you like chocolate cake. And you say, hey, Brother, will you share that with me? And because I love you and because I don't need to eat that whole chocolate cake to begin with, I say, yeah. So I, so I begin to cut into that. But then... Austin, you like chocolate cake, and you say, hey, you're about to share with Brother Trevor. Why don't you share with me? I love you. <laughs> and so I say, all right, fine. So I stop. Don't cut it. I say, okay, well, let me take this one piece of chocolate cake that I've got, and I begin to divide that up into one piece for you, one piece for you, and one piece for me. So now my one piece of chocolate cake has become three equal pieces of chocolate cake, only lesser. Mm. You can do that in English with our one, but you can't do that with the Hebrew echad. It's uniquely one that cannot be divided. Mm. So when they say that the Lord is one, you can't make him Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You can't divide him any kind of way, whatever way you try to split it. You can't make him halves, quarters, thirds, whatever it is. He is one, distinctly one. That's why Isaiah said in 29, 23, that he's the Holy One of Jacob. In 30 and 15, he's the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 37, 15, Hezekiah prays to the God who is God alone. Mm. Let's listen, Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. Here's that word again. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord. Man. Mm. My servant whom I have chosen that ye may know. And believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now think about that. Let that sink in. There's a throne in heaven. There's one throne. There's not a junior seat next to it. Father didn't kick his heels up and say, go save him, son. That's child sacrifice, which is an abomination. Mm. So this figurative language, 
that we read in the scripture. For example, when he looked up into heaven, he says, I see a throne and I see Jesus standing beside the throne at the right hand of God. That's figurative. Because why? Because Jesus was given all power in heaven and in earth. So the right hand is indicative of power and authority. So what, what he's saying is, I see Jesus in all of his power and all of his authority. Mm. Mm. And let me ask you this. Everybody agree with me that God is spirit? Okay. And does everybody agree with me that God is omnipresent? Okay, so that means he's not literally everywhere right now, but he's everywhere all the time. I mean, my mind gets a wrinkle on my brain when I think about, I mean, just being everywhere all the time at one time is enough. But if I could go a thousand years back into the past, he's still right there. And if I could go a thousand years into the future, he's still there also. He's omnipresent here, there, everywhere, all the time. Amen. Mm. So since we agree that that's a fact, where exactly would the right hand be? I don't know. Where is the right hand of God? It's figurative. The right hand. Listen, when you shake hands with somebody in a right hand, that's an agreement, right? But what you're saying is, I have the authority to make this agreement with you. By all the authority given me, I'm going to reach into this agreement and we're going to be bound together in that agreement. So what he's saying is Jesus had all authority and Jesus had all power and he's standing at the right hand of God. He's still got all the authority and all the power of God. Amen? Mm. Jesus, that's why he could say that all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Let me ask you another question. If, if there's a father and then there's junior, but he says, I've got all power in heaven and in earth, what about daddy? You got a powerless God sitting in heaven waiting on son to do everything. That's not God anymore. Mm. There's one throne, amen? And, there's, there, and beside that throne, right hand, left hand, other hand, it doesn't matter. There is not another one. He said, beside me, there is no savior. So think of it this, if, if I'm, pardon me, but if I'm God sitting on the throne, okay, and if there's Junior's seat, and Junior was the Savior, but he says, beside me, there is no Savior. Woo. Hmm. This is what he said in Isaiah 45, 21. There's no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There's none beside me. And Isaiah provides many, 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 many more examples. Go home and read Isaiah. But according to this website, it says it's livescience.com. It says today's Christianity is a result of the Council of Nicaea. Hmm. Why? My belief would be that today's Christianity is a result of what came out of here. I mean, today's Christians should be taught what the apostles taught, amen? And they were first called Christians where? Does anybody know? Antioch. It was a book of Acts church is where they were first called Christians. It was the first time that more than one race came together. They said, that's the church. Hmm, that's Christians. And that's why we're different, amen? There's a minister friend of mine that was in conversation I'm not going to give away the denomination, but it wasn't one of us, obviously, but it was somebody else. He was a pastor, and they got into this 
I wouldn't say an argument, but it was a conversation. And he, this man, bold-faced states to my friend that if you don't believe in three gods, you're not a Christian. Hmm. This is what Colossians 2, 8, and 9 says. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Nicaea sounds like confusion. Nicaea sounds like doctrines of men. Mm. For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Mm. So the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't adopted by Christianity until 325 at Nicaea. It was created by men, but adopted from other religions. Maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. But Babylonians worshipped one God and three persons. They use an equilateral triangle to demonstrate a trinity. A father, a mother, and a son. Ancient Egypt has a couple of triune gods among their many gods. Trinities exist in Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. But ultimately, a triune god concept in Christianity can be traced back to Greek philosophy. It was adopted into Christianity to accommodate those leaving other religions to make them feel more comfortable like they were still going to a polytheistic system to accommodate. So they, they adopted a pagan religion. They adopted a pagan philosophy as a man-made doctrine using non-biblical terminology. The issue, though, is this, perspective. Amen? See, the problem with us is we're looking back. And we look through all of that Nicaea business, and we have all of these people that have been formed and fashioned by it. Rather than looking from the beginning to the end, we look from the end to the beginning. Amen? And so what happens is we, we see these scriptures and these thought processes that have man's ideas imposed upon them, and what's read, and they make these inferences that the original authors never intended to be made. These authors, again, remember... They're one God-believing Jews. Hmm. So, rather than what they've done, which is establish a doctrine from this side and looking back, and our doctrine being influenced by man's opinions, we would be better served to read Scripture through the lens that looks forward through time and allows Scripture to then mold our thoughts and mold our doctrine according to what was originally intended by the writers. And I think that that's why John begins his gospel a little different. Did you know that 90% of John's gospel is unique to John? See, Mark jumps right into Jesus' ministry. He reminds me of the starving kid at a buffet. He just can't wait to get started, so he just jumps right in. Hey, Jesus got baptized, and here he goes on this ministry. These signs and these wonders and these miracles, and it's great. It's good. Somebody had to be first. Amen. Mark wanted to be first. Luke begins with a birth narrative about the angel appearing to Zechariah and birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And, and, and then Matthew begins, as I stated earlier, with Jesus' earthly lineage. But John goes further back, literally as far back as we can go, because John's on a mission. His opening words hearken us, the reader, back to Genesis in the beginning. Mm. And John says at this point, at that beginning, was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, and He dwelt among us. Would you show the Hebrew version, Brother Gary, of Genesis 1 and 1? All right, now bear with me. 
Again, we go that way. It says, Bereshis bara Elohim et Hashamayim vayet ha'eretz. Now you try. Your turn. Ha'eretz. <laughs> That's the earth. Okay. So we know what that says in English. Everybody say it with me. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Amen. But in English, in every other language that there is, let me call your attention to this smallest word kind of right here in the middle. It's literally in the middle. There's seven words. It's, it's the fourth word. It's literally the middle of the first verse of Genesis. And those two letters are the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Can you put that up, Brother Gary? You see them? There's Aleph up there and Tav. Remember, they go this way. So it's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yod, all the way down to Tav. Again, your turn. You go. Your turn. I'm sorry. I got jokes tonight. So thank you, Brother Gary. So let me ask you a question. We often will say that in Genesis 3 and 15 is the first messianic prophecy where it talks about the, 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 the serpent bruising the heel, but the heel bruising the head of the serpent. We say that's the first messianic prophecy. I'm going to teach you tonight that that is. That's the first messianic prophecy. Mm. Because what happens is, if you would, Brother Gary, put that Aleph bit back up. So if you could read it, if you could pretend in your mind that that's A, B, C, D, all the way to Z, you would agree with me that every single word in the English language is comprised of the letters that are right there. Any single word you can make then in Hebrew is also between Aleph and Tav. So you could say that Aleph and Tav represents the word. Hmm. So this is what John says. That in the beginning was the word. Hmm. Hmm. In the beginning, he says, was Aleph and Tav. And that Tav, that Aleph and Tav was with God. And that Aleph and Tav was God. And what Aleph and Tav does is it connects the heavenly with the earthly. Hmm. It, what it does here is it, it connects the creator on that side with his creation. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hmm. Was it say in verse 3 that all things were made by him? By who? By the Aleph and Tav. Hmm. Nothing was made without him. Amen. Without him was not anything made that was made. Again, John showing this connection. It says in verse 14, the word, the Aleph and Tav became flesh and dwelt among us. And it says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But I want to show you something else about Aleph and Tav. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. So the Greek equivalent for Aleph and Tav would then be Alpha and Omega. Mm. You're getting there. So Revelation 1.8 says, who's speaking in Revelation 1 and 8? Jesus is speaking. And this is what he says. I'm Alpha and Omega. Mm. I'm the first and the last. Words spoken by Jesus to John the Revelator, just declaring himself to be Alpha Omega, the first, the last, the Aleph, the Tav. Not a coincidence that they are the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. 
And I'll point out something else that's very, very interesting. Brother Gary, if you could put that olive bit back up. The way you see it here, the way it's written there, is basically like their official script. Okay, but it's not in its original form because like our language, the letters have kind of morphed over time. All right? So put the paleo Hebrew, please. Now I know it's kind of small and you're going to strain your eyes, but you can see that over there, the far left is the name of the, the, name of the letter. Okay? The second column is the transliteration, what that is in English, how the sound is in English, rather. But that third column is called Paleo-Hebrew, which essentially would be like if you had cavemen, what they would write the letter like. Okay? So if you look at the first one up at the top, which is Aleph, it's a bullock head. And then if you go down, you can't really see it down here on the bottom, but Tav is a cross. Hmm. So when he says that he is Aleph and Tav, what he's saying, there's a picture that's made that I'm the sacrificial animal that's going to go to the cross to make this connection between me and my creation. Mm. Tell me God didn't make that language. <laughs> mm. So it's a sacrificial animal and the instrument upon which it would be crucified. Mm. So in the beginning, John says, was the word. But in the, the other Greek word for word is logos, which also can be mind, thought, plan. So you can think about it as this way, that in the beginning there was a plan already in place. That a sacrificial animal was going to make its way to a cross. Mm. Man, my God. How are we doing on time? Good. Good. I'll be done by 10. I promise. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now again, as I stated, John's gospel is unique in how it begins. 90% of his gospel is unique when compared to the other synoptic gospel, gospels. They're called synoptic because they provide a synopsis of Jesus' ministry. They're on a different mission, really, than John is on, okay? Because John includes these things that are called the I am statements. Anybody ever heard that phrase, the I am statements? Okay, so why are these statements so significant? Because John is on a mission from verse 1 and 1 to prove to us who Jesus is. He takes us back to the Old Testament where there is a burning bush. Amen? This, whew, man. Mm. this burning bush that captures the attention of Moses and it turns him aside. You ever wonder what would have happened if Moses maybe didn't ever turn aside, if it didn't get his attention? How many times we just walk by something God's trying to get us to turn aside and we don't? Just food for thought. But let's go to Exodus 3, Brother Gary. Exodus 3, 13. Because, you know, Moses had a lot of excuses, right? Moses said, well, I'm of slow speech and I can't talk. And, well, who am I to go to these people? They don't know me. And, they, you know, they, they're going to say, well, you just killed a pharaoh or killed, killed an Egyptian uh, taskmaster. You got to get out of here. Moses, no. God begins to work on him, and then finally he says, okay, fine. 
if I'm going to go, they're going to want to know who sent me. I can't tell them a burning bush sent me. They're going to think I'm, I stutter and I'm crazy, okay? <laughs> uh, 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 the burning bush sent me. <laughs> Sorry, a little comedic relief for y'all on a Wednesday. Praise God. God had a sense of humor. He gave me one, amen? <laughs> but this is what he says. He says, when I come unto the children of Israel, and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, well, what's his name? What do I say to them? 14, God said to Moses, I am that I am. In Hebrew, that's eyeh, esher, eyeh. See, we, whew, man. I won't say Yah and Dwey together anymore after my Hebrew class because that, that is the name. But eyeh means I am. So eyeh, esher, eyeh means I will be what I will be which means that puts no limitations on what God can do. He says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. I can and I will. Amen? So, Brother Trevor, if you say he is, that's third person, what would the first person be? I am. So he's saying, I'm the he is that he is. I will be what I will be. So that's why they say he's the I am. The I am that I am. Eye, esher, eye. But it's really, Yah and way means I am. That's why a, Jewish, a Jew, when you talk to a Jew in Hebrew, they won't ever say, I am hungry. They will say, I hunger or I thirst, but they will never say, I am thirsty. I am hungry. Wow. I feel the Holy Ghost. So this is what he says. Tell the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then Exodus 6 and 3, it tells us that God was previously known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by El Shaddai. Simply God Almighty. It's not a name. That's a function. So there's no relationship if you don't have a name. So Moses is here being brought into this covenant relationship with a God that he now knows by name. And he says that I'm going to be known by this name for the rest of the generations. This is my name forever. It's called the memorial name, the I Am. And so in their efforts, though, in reverence to the name, you know, the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What that means, vain means don't make it meaningless. Don't make my name empty. So it's simply what they would say is Adonai or Hashem. When they see, like in your Bible, when you read and it says Lord and it's in all capital letters, that's what's written there. That's the proper name of God being translated in a way that you and I can read it. And I would say even in our Bible, you know, we throw around the word Jehovah. It's not biblical because there's no, there's no consonants in Hebrew. It's all vowels. And so you can't get a V sound. You can't. So, so what happened was the English translators took the Yah and the Way, and they took the Adonai and made it a word together to call it Jehovah because they want to be able to say the name. So in essence, what it is is the I Am is Y-H-W-H, which they won't even write because that's Yah and Way. 
So listen, in essence, what that means is the I am is the proper name that God gave Moses at that bush. And so when we read these things in John's gospel where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. My God. Somebody just worship me. Jesus. He says, I am. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 8, there's a conversation between Jesus and a group of these Pharisees who claim Abraham, rightly so, to be their father. And Jesus tells them that their father Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He saw it and he was glad, as a matter of fact. And then verse 57 of John 8 says, Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? You're not even 50. Abraham's been dead hundreds of years. Have you seen him? Hmm. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Hmm. Verse 59, what did they do? They took up stones to stone him to death because under the law he had just committed blasphemy, which was worthy of being put to death. Because what did he say? Because he said, I, I am. He just committed blasphemy. Because he's using this name that they've been taught not to use. He's using a name they've been taught not to utter. He's using a name they've been taught not to ever make empty or void or meaningless, not even to write it, but to have a substitute of Hashem or Adonai. But Jesus is using this name as his own. Why? Because it is his own. It is his name. When you read the birth narrative in Luke, go read it tonight. When it says you're going to call his name Jesus, it's in all caps. Why? Because it's the I am. Mm. Wow. John 8, 28 says this. We're almost done. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man then ye shall know that I am he. Any good Bible, the he is italicized. What that means is that he was added later by translators to make it more understandable to us, but what they've done is they've taken away meaning from the word. Because literally what Jesus said is this, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you're going to know that I am. Hmm. Let's look at John 19, 19 through 22. Excuse me. It says, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, the three dominant languages of the time. Then said the chief priest to the Jews to Pilate, listen, a Jew, the chief priest comes and says, hey, you can't put that up there. And Pilate being Pilate says, nah, I've wrote what I wrote. It's going to be, you can't make me change it. The Greeks had no problems. The Romans had no problems. Those that spoke Latin had no problems. Only the Jews had a problem. 
If you could, Brother Gary, put that in Hebrew. Okay. Hanazari Velemic Hayahudin. It's an acrostic. See those letters that are bolded, right? That's, that's intentional because it's an acrostic because the way that Jews can memorize such large portions of scripture is they make these acrostics. Kind of like if you read Psalm 119, that's all about the word. Every, in Hebrew, verse one all begins, or the first stanza always begins with Aleph. The second one begins with bet. The second one with, and it goes through their Aleph bet where every one of those first lines of those stanzas starts with the same letter. It makes it easy for them to memorize. And so their eyes are trained to look at the first letter of these words. And so when they look at this thing that's written above Jesus and it says, Yeshua HaNasurai Velimek HaYehudim, they would see the first letter of these words. And those first letters would be Y-H-W-H. So that's why Jesus said, when you've lifted me up, you're going to know that I am. Mm. That they literally hang this man accused and found guilty of blasphemy and has the name of the I am above him on the cross. How critical do you think it is that we believe in just one God? Amen? Let me read John 8 and 24. John 8, 24. Did I send that one to you, Brother Gary? There it is. He said, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, again, that he is italicized in your Bible, So what it says is, if you don't believe that I'm the I am, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe mm, that Jesus is fully God, you're going to die in your sins. Listen to what James said in 2.19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. What did Jesus say to those that had done well? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in. I think what James is saying is that you're going to hear well done so long as you believe in one God. Hmm. Because this is what else he says. The devils also believe and tremble. We do well to believe in one God. Amen. Could it be that hearing well done begins with believing he's the I am? And even the devils believe in one God, and then it says they tremble. They fear him, and I'll go so far as to say they fear those that know him. Hmm. Those sons of Sceva, amen, I'm done, you can stand. Those seven sons of Sceva that had heard Paul cast out devils in the name of Jesus. He said, what did they say? They, 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 they embarrassed that, those guys and sent them away squirming, trying to cover. Amen? And what did they say? They said, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? 
You don't know him like Paul knew him. Mm. Mm, we better know him. We better know the one true living God. We better worship him like he is the I am. Mm. He's the beginning, the last. Mm. Praise God. Aren't you thankful to know him? Praise God. Somebody praise him. I promised I'd get you done by 10. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. One God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one God who's above all, through all, and in you all. Amen. What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. I think somebody can receive the Holy Ghost right now. Why don't you just lift your hands and begin to pray for it? If you ain't received him yet, tonight's your night. Just lift your hands and begin to worship him. I feel the Holy Ghost. He's here. He's ready to fill. We worship in spirit and in truth. We just got a lot of truth. Let's get spirit now. Thank you, Jesus. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh just like you promised you would, Lord. We worship you. We honor you. We adore you. You are king. You are God alone. There's none else. There's none beside you. You're the author. You're the finisher of my faith. Lord, hallelujah, we worship and praise your holy name. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've brought us into this covenant relationship with you and that you've given us opportunity to know you, to serve you, to worship you. Hallelujah. Thank you that you've given us a name that is above every other name. Thank you, Jesus. That cancer bows at that name, that every disease bows at that name, that every turmoil and torment bows at that name. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Y'all are dismissed in the fear of God.